If you've got your Bible, let me encourage you to just turn with me quickly to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, very familiar passage, uh, perhaps the most well-known chapter in all of the Bible. You know, throughout December, I've been in just a short series uh, that I've called Heaven and Nature Sing. And in the series, I've taken a familiar Christmas hymn or Christmas carol, and I've, I've tried to use it as an illustration each week to tell you the story of Christmas. But the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is the carol that I really want to use as an illustration this morning, was written by Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley was one of the greatest hymn writers to have ever lived. He was the youngest of 18 children, uh, one of whom was his older brother, John, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. And really, uh, John and Charles both were instrumental, used by God uh, during the great Wesleyan revival that swept throughout much of England and Europe and even impacted America. But Charles Wesley was a hymn writer, and he wrote more than 3,000 hymns, many of which are still sung today all around the world. Well, in 1737, he was working on a new song for the Christmas worship service that would be in his church. And so he was pouring over the events that are associated with the birth of Christ as recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, this second chapter. Well, he wrote down the first line to that familiar Christmas carol to us, but here's the line that he wrote down. Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. And that's how Wesley wrote this hymn originally, welkin. Uh, not angels, but welkin. Someone says, well, what in the world is a welkin? Well, that word welkin, we don't use that word anymore in contemporary English, but in Wesley's day, it referred to the vault of heaven. Uh, we, would, we would say something like atmosphere or the visible sky. That is how he introduced this hymn uh, to his church. Hark how all the welkin rings. The skies declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, as the hymn grew in popularity, Wesley had a close personal friend in the evangelist George Whitfield. Well, Whitfield decided to make some changes to his friend's hymn, much to Charles Wesley's displeasure. Now, one thing about these music people that you don't do is you don't monkey with their music, especially the, the, the hymn writers. Man, that's not something that they really are fond of. But whenever Wesley read the first line that had been changed by Whitfield, I mean, he was incensed by this. Uh, Whitfield said, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, Wesley was upset by that because nowhere in the scriptures did it say that it was the angels who sang about the birth of Christ. And yet, because of George Whitfield's little change in that first line, most people today assume that Luke 2.13 refers to the singing of angels rather than the multitude of the heavenly host or welkin as Wesley referred to it. In fact, to his dying day, whenever that song was sung, everybody else would be singing, hark the herald angels sing, but Charles Wesley would be singing, hark the welkin rings. <laughs> I can see him now in my mind's eye with his arms folded as he did so. 
Now listen, whether it's Welkin, whether it's Angels, the simple fact remains that this Christmas hymn is one of the greatest that was ever written. Listen to the lyric, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now if you want to know what Christmas is all about, it's all about reconciliation. The fact that Jesus Christ is the gift to humanity through whom sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. And that word hark, it's a word that means to carefully listen to to something so you don't miss the importance of what's being said. And so the angelic host that appears here in Luke's gospel, here in chapter two, they have something very important to declare. There's a message with which they've been sent as heralds to announce the news of the Savior's birth. And so you and I would do very, very well to listen and pay careful attention to just what it is they have to say. So if you've got your Bible open there, uh, begin reading with me in verse number one, Luke chapter two. The Bible says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And we'll stop reading there. Hark the herald, angels sing. And man, they have a message to tell these shepherds here in this text, don't they? The news that the Christ had arrived, 
The news that God's gift, his own son, a savior, Christ the Lord, had been born this day in the city of Bethlehem. Now again, this is one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. It's been the subject of countless Christmas pageants and plays down through the years. Verses from this passage of scripture have been etched on millions of Christmas cards down through the years. And honestly, I'm asking that the Lord would give us fresh eyes, fresh ears, a fresh heart to respond to the wonderful truth that's being conveyed in this very familiar passage. Now, we don't need to miss the fact that what Luke is saying here, this is recorded history. Uh, Luke is a very careful historian. Uh, You'll notice as you read through the Gospel of Luke, Luke is keen on mentioning names, places uh, that coincide with leaders who were ruling in various points of history. And you'll notice as he begins this passage here in chapter 2, he mentions names like Caesar Augustus, uh, who was ruler of the Roman Empire, Quirinius, who was governor of Syria at the time. And what he's doing, he's he's grounding what he's about to say uh, in history. This is historical narrative that we're dealing with. This is not mythology. This is not just a good story that someone came up with. This is the truth. And this is inspired scripture. And Luke is grounding all of this in events that have happened in history. And it's important that we keep that in mind when we come to Christmas. Which, by the way, we still measure the calendar year in terms of the birth of Christ, do we not? We've lived in the year 2020, some 2,020 years removed from this particular point in history. And so revisionists can try to change history all they want, want to, but the fact remains that Jesus Christ split time and eternity when he made his entrance into the world of humanity. So in this passage of scripture, I want to I call to your attention uh, several, several things. Number one, notice with me the providence that was involved with the birth of Christ. Divine providence. What does providence mean? Well, providence means that God is working through circumstances, happenings, events in history, and he's doing so to work out his marvelous plan. And so the birth of Christ is something that is providential in nature. It's not by accident, but Christ came into the world at just the right time, the fixed point of time that God had in mind on his calendar. When was that time? Well, Luke is telling us here as he begins this chapter. In those days, there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. The idea is, as the emperor, uh, Augustus issues this edict that all of his realm was to be registered uh, for the purpose of taxation. And so that meant that everybody had to go to the place where they were born. They had to go to their hometown so that they could be registered. Now, the events that we read about here in Luke chapter 2, as they're occurring, some 1,500 miles on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, Uh, is a man by the name of Caesar Augustus who issues this decree. Uh, History knows him as Gaius Octavius, or Octavian, who was one of the most powerful men to have ever ruled the Roman Empire. And if we were to go back 45 years prior to the events of Luke chapter 2, 
Octavian is about 19 or 20 years of age. Julius Caesar uh, had adopted him as his own son and had determined that he would be his heir. A year later, Julius Caesar would be assassinated by his friends on the Ides of March in 44 BC. Well, at that point, the Roman Empire uh, was headed up by three men known as the Second Triumvirate. Octavius was one. There was another guy by the name of Lepidus. And then there was a fellow by the name of Mark Antony who just so happened to be Octavian's brother-in-law. He married Octavian's sister. Well, Lepidus, he bows out, and uh, the leadership of Rome is really determined by Mark Antony and Octavian. Well, Mark Antony uh, is unfaithful to his wife. Uh, he has a fling with Cleopatra, who's the queen of Egypt at the time. And so there's bad blood between Octavian and Mark Antony, and they engage in a civil war. You fast forward all the way to 31 BC at the Battle of Actium. Octavian soundly defeats Mark Antony. Mark Antony takes his own life. And from that point forward, Octavian, or Augustus, is the supreme ruler over all of Rome. And the Roman Senate confers upon him this title, Augustus. He refers to himself as Caesar Augustus. Augustus means supreme ruler, supreme leader. And he was a great leader. He was a very um, creative thinker. It was under Augustus that there was a system of roads that were established all throughout Rome. He enlarged the borders of the empire. Uh, he established something that was known as the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. Simply because of Rome's strength, no one dared rise up against the empire. And so here's what I'm showing you by telling you all of this. God is working behind the scenes throughout the decades leading up until the events of Luke chapter 2. His providence is at work behind the scenes, arranging the political situation, uh, the, the linguistic situation. There was a common language. Greek was spoken all over the Roman Empire. Religiously, the time was right for Christ's birth. The law of Moses had gone to work uh, convicting, exposing sin, showing man how desperately in need of a Savior he truly was. And there had been 400 silent years in Israel. There had been no prophetic voice, no news from heaven, no angelic messengers. The glory of God had long since departed from the temple. And now you have these angels who are arriving on the scene with news of the Savior's birth to some shepherds. Now, folks, here's what I want you to see through all of this. As important of a character that Caesar Augustus was as far as antiquity is concerned, I mean, he's got a decorated career. He would be among the who's who as far as the world is concerned. But all that Luke has to say about him is the fact that he made a decision to issue a decree in which his empire was to be registered for the purpose of taxation. The Holy Spirit's not concerned with any of his military conquests. The, the Holy Spirit's not concerned with all of his achievements and all of that kind of stuff. Listen, as far as God is concerned, God uses him. He's the man in power at the time who issues a decree that a census be taken that required men like Joseph, who was a carpenter in Nazareth, to uproot his fledgling family, his betrothed wife, who is great with child, by the way, 
and relocate some 90 miles for the sake of the census. I call that inconvenience if there ever has been an inconvenience. I call that government intrusion if there ever has been such a thing as government intrusion in someone's life. I don't know what they were thinking about that. I don't know how they responded to that in their minds. They were probably frustrated by it all. Just the same as you and I have been frustrated with all kinds of stuff that's come down the pike to us this year. But let me, let me ask you a question. Don't you think that the God who's sovereign and providential and who's arranging the circumstances with the first coming of Christ into this world, don't you think that something's going on behind the scenes on the world stage in 2020? Don't you think that for one second that God is perhaps arranging things that we may think are monumental in terms of importance, they may not even really be that big of a deal as far as God is concerned. But one thing I can tell you is the providence of God means that God is working behind the scenes, bringing history to its climax. And if he did that with the first coming of Christ, you can rest assured he's going to do that with the second coming of Christ. And the wonderful truth of divine providence means that the circumstances and the happenings of your life, the disappointments of your life, the things that you wouldn't have wished upon yourself, somehow, in some way, to some degree, God is using those in your life for his own purposes and for your own sanctification as a believer. So the providence of God is involved here in the birth of Christ. Now, notice the second thing, and that's the place that's involved. God's working behind the scenes to uproot Joseph, to get Joseph and Mary out of Nazareth, to get them all the way to a place called Bethlehem because this is how prophecy went. It was through the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that Messianic prophecy said, but you, Bethlehem, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So Caesar Augustus is an instrument of God's providence. Issues this imperial decree to get Joseph and Mary out of their hometown, to get them all the way to Bethlehem. Now, as they made that journey, it would have been a, have been a journey of about 90 miles or so. And you say, well, that's no big deal. Maybe they got in the Jeep, got on the interstate, and they were there about an hour and a half. Yeah, right, that's not how they traveled in those days. In fact, uh, it was a very difficult journey. Uh, it was an uphill journey. Even though they were going south, there was a steady increase as far as elevation is concerned. Their journey would have taken them down through the Jordan River Valley. It would have taken them up the rough and rocky Jericho Road, which was a very dangerous road in those days. And it was a very difficult, in fact, the elevation went up to uh, around 4,000 feet uh, going up the Jericho Road. So it was a difficult journey for Mary and Joseph. I don't know if you saw the film, uh, I guess it was 14, 15 years ago, The Nativity Story. It's probably the best depiction of how difficult it was for Mary and Joseph to make that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I remember Anita and I went to see it. Uh, she was eight months pregnant with our firstborn, Allie. And she's sitting there and she's watching it on the big screen and you see Joseph and you see how his feet are all torn and bloody from the rocks on the road and Mary is very much pregnant. My wife's sitting next to me, she's very much pregnant, she's crying. She says, I had no idea that it was so difficult. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? 
That's what's happening here in Luke chapter 2. Well, they eventually make it to Bethlehem. That's the place. Bethlehem means house of bread. It was the breadbasket of Israel, surrounded by fertile farm country, grass-covered hillsides. It was a place where flocks of sheep and goats grazed the surrounding areas. And it was only six miles of rugged hill country that separated Bethlehem from the city of Jerusalem itself. And so the census would have brought all of David's descendants to the area. In verse 6, Luke says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. There's no maternity ward. She doesn't check in to the local women's hospital. There's no comfortable bed for her. No private room, private quarters. The text simply says that she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Jesus is born in a stable. His tiny infant body is laid in a manger that was nothing more than a feeding trough for hungry animals. So think of the irony here of of the story. There's not an ivory bed for the king of kings. There's no golden cradle. The son of God doesn't make his entrance into a palace like the one that existed in Rome. 1,500 miles away, Augustus is sound asleep on his feathered pillow. The most powerful man in the world at the time. But here you have the king of kings and the Lord of lords who's born via humble means. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Now, folks, listen, all of it just highlights the reason that Christ came. Uh, He didn't make his entrance into the world in a place like Rome or Athens or even Jerusalem. But he's born in a stable in a little village like Bethlehem, and it all emphasizes the truth of how he came to earth to save humanity by becoming one of us, to bring hope to the lowly by becoming lowly himself. And so Luke is showing us what type of savior he is going to be. So the providence of God was involved in the birth of Christ. The place that was involved, well, that's Bethlehem. But then notice number three, the people who were involved. The birth announcement is made, but who is it that receives this special news that the Savior is born? Well, the Bible says in verses eight and nine that the news was announced to some lowly shepherds who were out in their fields watching over their flocks at night. And of all the people at that, at that time that God could have chosen to announce the birth of his son to, he chooses these shepherds. Not to kings and queens, not to the royalty of the world, not to dignitaries, uh, not to the priests or the Sadducees and Pharisees and the religious elite in Jerusalem, but he chooses these shepherds who at the time were frowned upon by the rest of society. I like what Dr. Chuck Swindoll says about this. He said, God sent word of his son's birth first to people most likely to welcome the news of a Messiah people who knew they needed a savior. Augustus held a firm grip on the known world, so his power blinded him to his own need. Herod the Great strutted around the marble floors of his Roman-style palace, proud of his achievements, paranoid of his enemies. 
The religious authorities who ruled the temple wanted a Messiah to affirm their hypocrisy and advance their political agenda. And to none of these is the news of Christ's birth announced. Not to those who were blinded by their power, not to those who were blinded by their paranoia, not to those who were blinded by their pride, but to these lowly shepherds who recognized the fact that they stood in need of a savior. And it all just reflects the heart of God for the outcast, doesn't it? I mean, it's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh can glory in his presence. Heaven doesn't celebrate the things that we often celebrate. There was nothing about a shepherd that was glamorous, nothing about his profession that was glamorous, but there's something wonderful about their inclusion here in the Christmas story. And it reflects the fact that the kingdom of God, it's not simply for the insiders, it's not for the people who seem to have it all together, it's not simply for the well-to-do of society, but the kingdom is made up of people who by the world's standards have no business of being anywhere near royalty. That's me, that's you, that's us. And it's all a clue as to what type of savior this Messiah would be. Yes, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's the son of David who will rule from the throne of David. But he's also a shepherd who's going to lay down his life for his sheep. And it's an amazing thing when you consider throughout all of the Old Testament, all of those that God chose for special tasks were often associated with shepherding. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were shepherds. Moses, what's he doing when the call of God comes to his life? He's watching his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of uh, the wilderness in, in Midian. David, uh, he's a shepherd boy. He's a shepherd king. It's David who pins these words in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my faithful shepherd, therefore I have everything in him that I need. Matthew says of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for the crowds because they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus said of himself in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What type of leader is this Messiah going to be? He's not going to be a political savior. He's not going to be patterned after the Caesar Augustuses of this world or the Herod the Greats of this world or anybody else for that matter. He's the shepherd who's coming, who's entered the world to secure the salvation of his sheep. That's who he is. That's exactly who he is. But he's not just the sheep, he's the lamb. Something that these shepherds would be very familiar with. For what purpose were they serving? 
Their profession required them to raise sacrificial animals that would be slaughtered in the temple day upon day, year upon year, just six miles over the hill. And no doubt there were little lambs that those shepherds raised that went to the slaughter, and they knew where they were going. And yet here you have the host of heaven, the welkin, as Wesley would put it, announcing to these shepherds that the shepherd who is the lamb has been born. So the providence of God is involved in all of this. The place was Bethlehem. The people, lowly shepherds who knew they needed a savior. But number four, notice the purpose. What's the ultimate purpose? Why is it that the Son of God has made his entrance into our world? Well, pay close attention to the message that these shepherds are given. When the angel appears, the glory of God is shining, and their first response is one of fear and terror. Why is that? Because they knew they were in the presence of something holy. That's often the response that you see throughout the Bible whenever sinful man is confronted by the presence of the holy. He falls on his face. It was the response of Moses when he learned that it was God that had appeared to him. These, these shepherds are in the presence of holiness, and yet the news is, don't be afraid. Fear not. This is not a message for you to be terrified of. This is a message that you ought to just absolutely rejoice in. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. The Greek word that's used there, it's the same word we get the word gospel from and evangelism from. I'm bringing you the good news of the gospel. It's good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And verse 11 is the key verse in this entire text. And don't you love the language there? For unto you, for you, for your sake, there is born this very day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not just anybody, but this is, this is the one who has the right to rule from the throne of his father David. This is Messiah. This is Christ. And he is the Lord. This is God incarnate. This is deity wrapped up in humanity. And he's given as a gift for you. Listen, this is the greatest announcement, the greatest news that the world has ever heard, men and women. It doesn't get any better than this. And the angel's saying, look, he's not come to simply be an example so that you can pattern your life after his. He's not come to be an example of morality. He's not come to primarily be a teacher. He's not come primarily as a prophet or a symbol of hope. And all of that, all of that is certainly true. The angel is saying he's come to be your savior. He's the one and only person who can save you from your sin. He's the one and only sacrifice who can make atonement for sin. He's born into this world that he might live, that he might die. And so just as a sacrificial lamb died in the place of the sinner throughout the Old Testament, 
The Lamb of God had come to bear in his own body the penalty for sin. He would die as the perfect and final sacrifice so that there would never again be the need for another sacrifice. That's what it means that he is a savior. And that's why the heavenly host could join in with the angels and could sing and say to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And older translations translate it this way, peace, goodwill toward men. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace for those on whom his gracious kindness rests. That's what that means there. Now, you know, Christmas is often associated with peace, isn't it? The message of peace often goes out worldwide during this time of year. But if you want to understand this announcement from the angels, as far as peace is concerned, you need to understand what peace means from a biblical standpoint. This is not a reference to this sort of general, squishy, politically correct peacefulness that's so popular in our day. This is not reference to a conflict, problem-free life. But biblically, it's, it's a word that speaks of the end of enmity, the end of hostility. It's peace that comes as the result of reconciliation. In other words, the announcement is this. God has graced humanity with a savior who reconciles sinful man to a holy God. And when his redemptive plan is complete, the reconciler, this Christ child, the reconciler will have restored peace between God and man. Or as Wesley put it, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Listen, y'all realize that that's the world's greatest need today. That's humanity's greatest need. The solutions to our problem are not gonna come through more education, political reform, tearing down one system and trying to replace it with an entirely different system. lack of conviction as it comes to truth. If everybody just quit making exclusive dogmatic truth claims, then the world could have peace. You've seen these bumper stickers that have all of the symbols of the major world religions spelled out the word peace. That's the world's idea of peace. That's not the peace of God. Peace, as far as God is concerned, is the reconciliation between God and man. And folks, that's only possible through the death of Jesus Christ in the sinner's place. It's what atonement means. Christ came that he might live and die as our atoning sacrifice who suffered and died in my place, condemned in my place, bearing in his body the wrath of God upon sin in my place so that I can be reconciled to God and therefore be at peace with God. That's what peace is, biblically. Now listen, here's the thing. If Christmas is about humanity, sinful man being reconciled to a holy God, and through Jesus Christ, sinners are reconciled to God, Don't you think that that ought to impact our horizontal relationships with one another? I think about the cross. The cross has a vertical beam and it has a horizontal beam. 
The vertical beam testifies to the fact that through Jesus Christ, I'm at peace with God. I've been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ for me. And that's a gift that I've received solely on the basis of faith. Through no merit of my own, through no work of my own, I'm not saved on the basis of my performance. It's Christ's performance. It's Christ's death. It's Christ's suffering for me. And yet, horizontally, listen, to be at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ means that you can lay down your arms against one another. And if we've ever lived through a time where people have taken up arms against one another, it's our time. Never in my life have I seen so much conflict, so much hostility, whether it be politically, whether it be relationally, Families that won't meet this year for Christmas simply because of some relational spat that's happened earlier in the year. Both sides won't surrender their pride or swallow their pride to make things right. People at odds with each other over just a whole host of issues, all of which are peripheral issues. None of which are life and death issues. And yet the fact remains, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God that we might be reconciled. And by the way, that's what the church is, isn't it? The church is just a bunch of imperfect people who've been brought under the banner of the cross, reconciled to God, reconciled to each other, and they ain't a single one of us in the room got it all together. Would you stand with me as we pray? I've got to stop here. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Isn't that just a wonderful, wonderful message this year? Listen to this. Let me just leave you the last stanza of that wonderful hymn. Mild he lays his glories by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Oh, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today as your savior, why not receive the greatest gift you could ever receive and be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus? Heads bowed, eyes closed. We're going to sing here in just a few moments. Those of you here in the room, listen, if you've got a decision to make this morning, may God give you freedom and liberty to make that decision. If you need to be saved, listen, don't leave this place without getting that issue settled, knowing for sure that you've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're watching online this morning and you're not sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven, right there where you are, can I just urge you to repent of your sin Place your faith in Jesus alone. Cry out to him and say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do in my own strength to be at peace with God. I know that I've got to turn to you in total faith, believing that you died for me, that you rose again from the dead, and I confess you as my Lord. And the Bible says that you need to be baptized. And that's the way that a new believer declares to the world that he or she is following Jesus. Do you need to be baptized? Listen, get in touch with us this week. Come speak to one of our pastors as we sing 
even after the service is over, we'd love to pray with you and talk with you further about baptism. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your son because that's what Christmas is all about. So Lord, for those who have decisions to make today, Lord, may they have freedom to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.